Good morning. I am Jen Fisher. I'm your associate pastor here at Forefront Brooklyn. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Uh, they're clapping because last week we just announced that my title changed from community director to associate pastor. So just to fill all that in for you guys. All right, now let's get back to business. Um, so I want to tell you about this Pew Research statistic that came out last year. It said that 9% of Americans want to travel through time. It sounds like a small number until you stop to realize that that's roughly 1 in 10, or about 30 million of us. But what I thought was interesting about this is that this statistic wasn't found from some multiple choice or direct question like, would you ever want to travel through time? But rather, it was discovered through a short 14-question survey about technology in the future. And the last question was a simple one. It was just... If there was one futuristic invention you could own, what would it be? So it's funny to think that off the top of their heads, 9% of the 1,001 people that were surveyed, and I don't know why it was 1,001 and not just 1,000, but still, 9% of those people said, I want a time machine. (laughs) It was an open-ended answer that people came up with entirely on their own. And this desire for time travel, it ranked top of the list, along with cures for diseases. People wanted to travel through time more than they wanted robot servants, which was only 4%, more than they wanted world peace, which was only 2%, and it was three times more popular than hover cars, holodecks, and jetpacks combined. And if you know what a holodeck is, you can come tell me after church, because I don't know. So, the producers of the radio show, This American Life, they found this survey and statistic to be interesting enough that they wanted to do some more exploring. So they went out and asked people, what is the impulse for wanting to travel through time? Was it a curiosity for the future? Was it some regret over the past? And I highly recommend that you listen to this podcast because it is hilarious to hear. And I won't get into all the marvelous things that people say about why they wanted to go back into the past. But I will say that over and over again, many of the people said, I've thought about this, and they came to the conclusion that is maybe the most worldwide or maybe the most heroic. They said, I want to go back in time and I want to kill Hitler. Which is noble, I guess, but not everyone chose something quite so altruistic. Some people just wanted to go back and savor their past or appreciate it in a different way. There was one woman who said that she would go back to the last conversation that she had with her husband before he died of cardiac arrest. She would have made it about how much he meant to her rather than about Tupperware. Or there was an 11-year-old girl that they interviewed who said she had a load of regrets that she would go back and change in her life, one of them being the time she told a joke to a room full of adults, starting with the line, a Canadian, an Italian, and two Chinese people were standing on a roof. It's really funny to listen to the crazy things that people spend all this time rehashing in their brains, going back and thinking about what exes they would never have asked out or who they would have punched in the face. So I have to ask you guys this question again. Here we are talking about time travel. If you had a time machine right now that you could get into, what would you do? Would you go forward and find out 10 years from now if that great startup idea you have is the next big thing? Or would you go back to that conversation you had three years ago that you wish you would have said something a little different so that person might still be in your life? What would you do if you could travel through time right now? 
I talked about this idea with a few other people and realized that I guess it shouldn't come as quite a surprise that we Americans are obsessed with time travel because it's been a part of our popular culture for several generations. It started with H.G. Wells, his popular book, um, The Time Machine, which was published in 1895. And I don't know anyone who doesn't have a fondness for Michael J. Fox and his epic movie trilogy, Back to the Future. And this obsession continues today with modern versions of a long-running show, Doctor Who. It's been on for more than 50 years. There's 13 different people who have played the Doctor. And I'm sure you're thinking of other favorites right now. But perhaps one of the most beloved stories of all time that focuses in on this idea of time and reflection is one that's perfectly tailored for the Advent season, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And yes... I did some research for all of you. I watched Muppets Christmas Carol this weekend. You're welcome. (laughs) So you know the story. We've got Ebenezer Scrooge, right? The greedy old man with this bah humbug mentality about Christmas. He's visited in the night by three ghosts who are trying to set him right in his ways. First up, it's the ghost of Christmas past. She's this bright, bubbly little spirit who takes him back to the days when he had a fiancé who loved him, back before she realized that his love for money would always be first in his heart. And this, these soft, warm memories, they kind of open Scrooge up just enough to get him ready for the next ghost, which is the ghost of Christmas present. Here he's taken to the home of Bob Cratchit, his poorly paid employee, He's watching as them, as the family sits around the table with uh, generosity and love and family. And remember, there's little tiny Tim with the little crutch and the hat and stuff. And um, Scrooge is just so filled with family and love and Christmas goodness that he doesn't even want to leave this scene. But of course, the story would not be complete without a visit from the ghost of Christmas yet to come. That's the guy who kind of looks like the Grim Reaper. He takes Scrooge to the graveyard where he sees people dividing up the lot of his things, happy that this man is no longer around to make them miserable. And as the story goes, Scrooge wakes up the next morning from this dream, a changed man. He now appreciates and values the meaning of Christmas. Kermit and Miss Piggy sing this song about how wherever you find love, it feels like Christmas. He buys this big turkey, takes it to the Cratchit house, becomes like a second father to Tiny Tim. It's this beautiful story of redemption and renewal, of a grumpy old man who takes the time to reflect on his past, consider his ways, and repent. It is this story and so many others that fit so well into this Christmas season because this is a season when we do wonder about time a lot. A season when we're forced to sit in this tension of the holidays and it can be such a double-edged sword. The Christmas season is loaded with expectations about family and love and goodwill, but it's also loaded with feelings of longing and failure, regret, Traditions can be beautiful and meaningful, but they can also be way overdone. We spend a lot of time as human beings reflecting on our past and longing for our future. Life is hard, and sometimes the events of our past, they can cast these long shadows that cloud our future. Shadows that put this pain in your mind that you keep reliving day after day. The parent who wasn't there for Christmas. The friend who betrayed you. The boss who humiliated you. Christmas especially evokes these memories because as the calendar winds down, it tells you you're nearing yet another year and you still haven't gotten over that pain from too long ago. Well, 
This Advent, as we wrestle with this tension of the holiday season together as a community, we're going to dive into the Old Testament book of the prophet Isaiah. The prophets are calling us to some of this peace and promise that we're all longing for. They call us to believe that our God is a timeless God, a God who inserts himself into our concepts of past, present, and future in order to offer us hope. This is kind of a big idea, this concept of time and God. So maybe we can start today by just talking about our collective past as the people of God. It might, start to, it might help to start with talking about Isaiah's context. So, first off, what is a prophet, anyway? The very word prophet has kind of come to mean like a fortune teller or like a crystal ball gazer of sorts. Maybe you think of Coney Island or something like that. Um, But in Old Testament times, prophets actually functioned more as seers. They could see into the future and have clarity about the present day better than most others could. And there were actually a lot of prophets and prophetesses walking around at this time. So what did the people of God think about these prophecies? Specifically, what did they think of Isaiah? Well, Isaiah was actually really well respected. He mostly served as an advisor. His prophecies were said in an effort to counsel the kings of Israel, and he preached at a really critical time in the history of the Jewish people. You see, the original nation of Israel was split into two at this time. It was Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and of course, they were always fighting, and they were fighting the nations around them. So Isaiah spoke about these visions of Zion, of Babylon, Assyria, Judah, Jerusalem. He spoke about God's wrath on these places, about armies coming in. He spoke about God's blessings on his people. These visions of the future kind of served as warnings on how to to act during present time. And as you read one war plan after another, you start to see how God is inserting himself into their present concept of time, into their issues, into their context. It becomes clear how much the prophets were concerned with the events of their present day, trying to warn their leaders of how life would go from one battle to the next. So what do these prophecies mean to the people of Israel, though? Not just the leaders, but the people. The book of Isaiah is actually really important. It was very effective at conveying God's message. It served as a great reminder of the covenant between God and his people. Not just for one generation, but for many. It was written throughout the reign of four different kings of Judah. So most biblical scholars believe that it's 66 chapters. It's a really long book. That they were probably written by at least three different writers who kind of uh, attached themselves to the name and style of Isaiah because of how well respected he was. The Christian author, Philip Yancey, he wrote this really great book called The Bible Jesus Read. And in it, he talks about all the prophets in the Old Testament, not just Isaiah, but Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And he kind of puts all the prophecies into three categories and breaks them up into different timelines so we can kind of start to understand where they all fall within the book uh, or within the timeline of God's story. So first up is the category of now which are prophecies that relate primarily to the prophet's own day. So you have events like the Assyrian army who are about to roll into Judah, and this seems like a really terrifying, maybe end-of-the-world situation for the people. But Isaiah is able to see that it's just a blip in the story of God, that God is going to use the Assyrians and toss them aside. These prophecies call such invasions and events into a different light, and the accuracy that Isaiah had at predicting current events, it really helped the people of Israel to realize 
Should they question who was running the world? Was it these governments and these hubris kings and politicians? Or was it God? The prophets were just ordinary men. Only They had only a little more insight into God than the rest of us. And with no weapon other than the sheer moral force of spoken word, they stood against the powers of their world. Something that I hope we can find really encouraging still today. So the next category is the future. Predictions of future events that are well removed from the prophet's own day. And these include messianic prophecies or prophecies about the coming Messiah. These are prophecies that the New Testament authors would later apply to Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk more about messianic prophecies this Advent season. But understand right now that it's only in the light of the future events of the New Testament that the words of Isaiah become so completely hopeful in the person of Jesus. Understand that the Son of God, he doesn't even walk the earth until 800 years after Isaiah is writing. So it's the New Testament scholars who help us to understand that Isaiah kind of functions like a fifth gospel in some ways, because it's so full of information about the coming and the character of Christ. But we don't really know if Isaiah understood that he was talking about the incarnation, that he was talking about the Son of God when he wrote these prophecies. So then the third category is events that are much further in the future, prophecies that still seem to lie in the future for us even today. And these are things like mass uh, conversion of Jews and worldwide tribulation that scholars still don't agree on. These are things that we still don't understand when they'll even happen. They're still far in the future for us. And this is the most confusing aspect of the prophets, that these events they predict, the invasions, the earthquakes, a coming leader, a recreated earth, we don't know if they're going to happen tomorrow, 100 years from now, 3,000 years from now. So let's shift our conversation now. We, we got a little bit of that context for Isaiah. Let's talk about our modern-day context. Here we are, sifting through this long book, right? Getting all these details about the politics of Isaiah's time. And it's kind of hard to understand what the biblical writers were thinking when they put all this in the book. But if we read Isaiah trying to pull out these bits of history and facts, then we're probably missing the point. Read instead for his words of hope and of new beginnings. Read to learn about God's relationship with his people, about how much he loves us. Isaiah is a beautiful writer, full of poetry, rich in images, and chapter 64 is a great example of this. Ben just read some for us. In the beginning, he opens with this great imagery. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. You see, the reason we're looking at this passage today is because despite the fact that Isaiah was a seer of the future, that he could travel in time, essentially, into the future, and that he could rewrite the past with perspective, despite all that, he was still just a man with no more courage than the rest of us. This great biblical lament that he goes through over the course of a couple chapters proves that. I mean, this is the prophet, this human being, wrestling with a hidden God just as we do today. He even had trouble understanding how God works, how this timeless God works. Just because he worked one way in the past, in ancient times, it doesn't mean that that's how he's going to work again. So here's Isaiah asking questions like, how can we be saved? Why haven't you rescued us? Why haven't you answered my prayers? 
Why haven't you sent down fire or shaken up the earth? Why are you letting us just sit in our misery and our sin? Verse 7 says, No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Despite everything Isaiah understands about how God's timeline works, here he is begging him to work on our human timeline, to answer his prayers, to rescue his people right now. So let's pause for a moment and consider something else about this passage. Let's consider something about what we know. Here we are reading these laments of the past, but our hope today luckily doesn't rely on God acting the same way that he did in ancient times begging him for earthquakes and seas parting. God doesn't speak to us from, loud, from clouds with booming voices, at least not that I'm aware of from all of you. So we do know something, though, that the people of Israel didn't know at the time that Isaiah was writing. We know that a birth is coming, a birth that is going to change the course of history. It will literally rewrite the definition of time, B.C., A.D., Right? This is an event that will be for all the ages. This is a timeless event. Our hope does not rely on God sending down yet another prophet or an earthquake or a cosmic event to save us because he's already saved us. He already changed the story when he sent his son in human form. It's like he just took a huge shift in the story of what was going on. He, he literally rewrote it. Jesus changed everything. My son changes everything. When we read this lament, understanding the context of this bigger story that God is writing, this, how Jesus plays into the past, the present, and the future, then our hope starts to rely now on the character of God. We rely on him being the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. A God who listens to the laments of his people. A God who hears our cries, who does not abandon us, who will finally redeem all that is lost in a new heaven and a new earth. This tradition of biblical lament, like this passage in Isaiah, it serves as not as nostalgia of the past, when God worked in a way that was just so much easier to understand, and it doesn't dismiss our present context either as something that is beyond God's repair, but rather it draws on the collective memories of God's people as a source of hope for the future. We can sit here and we can read these words in the context of the past and today or in a hope for the future, and still it's saying the same thing. I've been there for you before, and I'm going to be there for you again, even if I feel utterly quiet and hidden. But what this passage also reminds us is that we cannot control God. We pray in our own concept of time, but he works in a completely different concept. Our God is of all time. He is timeless. And it's a really hard thing to think about when you are praying and asking for something to happen. You know, have you ever had a prayer answered 5, 10, 12 years later? Maybe even when you didn't really care about it anymore? I mean, have you ever uh, had it answered in a way that you couldn't predict or understand? Are you still waiting on some prayers to be answered? Think about how your relationship with God would change if you could see into the future. You know, if if you knew that two years from now you were going to have the spouse and the family that you've dreamed of, would it change what you do at the bar tonight? Or what about if ten years from now you understand, you know that you're going to be battling cancer and have really large medical bills? Would it change the way you eat and what you do with your money today? 
It can be really hard to get stuck in this tension of not knowing how to control the future and not having any say over just waiting for our prayers to be answered. It can be really frustrating. I have a friend who recently told me the story of her grandparents, and for the sake of the story, we'll call my friend Erica. Erica said that after 18 years of marriage, her grandparents divorced before she was born, and it was a rough divorce. Her grandmother even quickly remarried out of heartache to a man who was not good, and she was divorced again a few years later. Grandma and Grandpa, as we'll call them, they were not even on speaking terms, and Erica remembers some really rough Christmases, where every year they would unwrap their presents once in front of Grandma, and then rewrap them and open them again in front of Grandpa. It was bad. At one point it got so bad that her mother came to the kids and said, we're just going to start praying. We're going to pray for Grandma and Grandpa, not that... They would get back together, but just that there would be some peace in their relationship. So these prayers went on for years, for decades even. And throughout this time, the family attended church and continued to grow individually in their relationships with Christ. And slowly but surely, you started to see some growth. And, of course, this probably wasn't happening on the timeline that the family hoped for. There were decades of tough Christmases in between. But one year, Grandpa called up Grandma to check on her. And from there, these two people who couldn't even stand the sight of each other, let alone have a conversation, soon they were meeting up together, and slowly but surely, you saw their relationship heal. 36 years after they got married the first time, and 18 years after they bitterly divorced, they remarried. The Christmas that followed was this ridiculously huge celebration that the family had all prayed for, but had probably lost a little bit of hope would happen. And yet here they were. It's now their second 15th anniversary, and they're still not perfect. But this is an example of two people who were open to growth and to healing. It wasn't some miracle, dramatic story that happened from one dream overnight. It was the slow course of a family's life filled with little actions and laments and choices that moved two people closer and closer to redemption and renewal. But the hard part about hearing stories like that is that it reminds you of that awful quote that you never want to hear, that time heals all wounds. I mean, how often have you prayed to God, just take the pain away? After you lose a job or after a breakup, like, I just, I don't want to deal with this. I just want to move on and have it be done. But we know that's not really how it works. That sometimes you need that bit of time to help the growth and the healing begin. And it reminds me of Isaiah saying, God, save us. But he knows, too, that it's a process. That God is our potter, our molder. We are his clay. And slowly we are being shaped into the people who are fit for his story, if only we are willing to let him in for healing. Advent is this time when we must do the work to just open our hearts a little and to repent and to beg, come Lord Jesus, reminding ourselves that our hope is one of patience and trust, of a willingness to live in this tension without the closure, without the resolution we crave sometimes, and yet still content, happy even, that our peace is found on another level and another concept of time, from a source that is beyond ourselves. The Roman Catholic theologian Richard Rohr says, we are able to trust that he will come again, just as Jesus has come into our past, into our private dilemmas, and into our suffering world. Our Christian past then becomes our Christian prologue, and come Lord Jesus is not a cry of desperation, but of an assured shout of cosmic hope. 
You know, sometimes what we need is this perspective that Advent offers, that Isaiah offers, to pick us up out of our individual circumstances and to connect us to this larger story that God is writing for the world. This is the season to just sit in that tension between his grace and his judgment. So maybe this Advent we can spend the time not looking around and adding up what's wrong with our world, but maybe just slowing down to focus in on one. Asking yourself, do I personally believe that he's got this? What's holding me back from saying, come Lord Jesus? What is it that I need to ask God to step into in my past? Or what longings do I have for the future that I can let him into? You see, in all of our time travel, we still want to be the fixer, right? But the truth is that we believe in a God who is already there in your past, in your future, offering you love, hope, and forgiveness if only you will let him. You know, reliving the emotional memories of the past and seeing the realities of his dark future, that was enough to make Scrooge change his ways and to have compassion for the people in his life. But he had a choice, just as we all do, to accept the gift of mercy and grace or to reject it and to stay discontent and disconnected from God and his people. The beauty of Advent is that this is a time when we get to just be still, We get to reflect and repent so that we might start to see the bigger picture that is unfolding before us. I think most of us know, though, that that is (laughs) not as easy as just waking up from a dream. It still takes a lot more work than that. So maybe this Christmas season is about just starting the process. Starting to learn what it looks like to forgive someone from your past. Or starting to learn what it looks like to forgive yourself. Maybe this is a time to prepare yourself to rise above the family drama, to show a little more grace and compassion. Or maybe it's about showing some grace and compassion to yourself when the family drama still gets the better of you. Maybe this is a time to let go of old expectations or demands and to learn to battle that loneliness and that shame that always sets in this time of year with those nagging questions. Why aren't you married yet? When are you going to give me grandkids? Maybe it's simply just making some time to be still and say, Come, Lord Jesus. In Philip Yancey's book, he goes on to say, We cannot fully comprehend the cosmic point of view. Bound in time, we see history second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour. The prophets call us beyond the fears and grim reality of present history to a view of all eternity, to a time when God's reign will fill the earth with light and truth, In a word, the prophets offer us hope. The beauty of the word the prophets is that they call us beyond this grim fear and reality of our present history. They call us beyond our own small concept of time to a time when we can view all of eternity. A sacred time when God's reign will fill the earth with light and hope and truth. Our timeless God inserts himself into our context of time, into our moments, our hours, our years, into our personal past and present and future, this timeless God inserts himself through the incarnation, through the birth of Christ. The prophets tell of this recreated heaven and earth in order to demonstrate that history will be determined by God's future, not by the present reality of the suffering and the chaos that is happening in our world, not by the horrors of what's going on in the Middle East not by the heartache of what's happening in Missouri, 
but by a tiny little baby that is born again this Christmas in a little manger in Bethlehem. A shift in the story for all of us. We may never truly understand the intricacies of Isaiah's prophecies or answer where or when they're going to take place, but if we're reading the words of Isaiah this Advent season, trying to pull out those details, then we're missing out on something a lot bigger. The words of the prophets are an opportunity to look into the character and the heart of our God. If we can read these words and learn to believe that our struggle is really against the perceptions we have of ourselves and the powers we've built up in our world, if we can learn to let go of the past and look towards our future in hope, and if we can believe that God will prove himself trustworthy and that he will set right all that is wrong, then maybe we can start to open our hearts enough to allow him to use us to demonstrate his passion for truth and justice in this world. These are all things that Isaiah is pointing us towards. And if we can start to understand a little bit of that this Advent season, then maybe we will be accomplishing what the prophets set out to do all along. Will you guys pray with me? Ancient God, present God, future God. We are here again. Another year has passed. We bring new experiences to this holiday season, new love, new loss, new knowledge, old knowledge that has reached its time and is in need of putting away or healing. As we head into this season as a community, would you just bring to our remembrance all that has come before that we are in need of holding on to? Would you help us to remember what it is that you're calling us to in this Advent season? It's in your name we pray. Amen.